welcome back. It's the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and I'm about 25 feet higher than I used to be. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other things that don't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Also, go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep you busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Oh, hey, here's a trivia question for ye. What musician from the rock and roll era who died just a few weeks before his 27th birthday had his body stolen and partially cremated in a national park? I'll have the answer and the story behind it at the end of the show. So if I sound a little different today, it's because I'm in a new space. I have moved out of the old Bob Cratchit studio in my basement and into a spare room on the second floor of my house, and I'm still playing around with the way everything is arranged, but I'm above ground, which is nice. I'm in a warmer place, which is even nicer. And I even have windows to look through, except I've got my back to them just now. Okay, this is supposed to be the second Shel Silverstein show, but I had some trouble with organizing my elements. It got weirdly complicated. I got kind of writer's blocked. I don't know. So I'm going to hold off for a little bit until I can come up with something in a better arrangement. So instead, this week we're going to take a peek at a Neil Sedaka hit, which has an interesting distinction about it. But first, of course, we have to look at a different song. The Showman was a doo-wop group that was based out of New Orleans, although the individual members were not. The group came from the Norfolk, Virginia area, and they were originally called the Humdingers. When they got to New Orleans, they became the Showmen, and they recorded about 15 different tracks in the early 1960s under the supervision of Alan Toussaint. Nowadays, they're best known for the Carolina Shag standard 392146 shape, and this 1961 track called It Will Stand. The showmen, incidentally, were fronted by a man named General Norman Johnson, who founded the group when he was 12 years old. The showmen broke up in 1968, and Johnson tried a solo career for a brief period before forming the group chairman of the board. It Will Stand peaked at number one, uh, 61 on the Billboard Hot 100 that year, and it recharted at number 80 in 1964. So while it didn't do a lot from a charting standpoint, it does stand as one of doo better tracks, and it did provide some inspiration for Neil Sedaka. Doesn't sound quite the same, but some of the structuring is similar. Now, by uh, 1962, Sadaka's records had been in the top ten eight times, but he still had yet to reach that number one slot. He and Howie Greenfield put this song together, and then they brought it over to Barry Mann. Barry Mann, of course, is half of the songwriting duo of Mann and Wild. As it turned out, Mann didn't really think much of it, so Sadaka added that dooby-doo-dom-dom opening and closing, which appears to have made the difference. And by the way, the backup singers on this record? Girl group, The Cookies. Anyway... The song was recorded and released at the end of June in 1962, and it became his first number one hit, and probably the song of the entire summer that year, given that it took the top spot, number one, in mid-August. 
It also went to number seven in the UK and was generally a worldwide hit for Sadaka, including this version that he recorded for the Italian market. This one's titled Tu Non Lo Say, and uh, I don't think the cookie sang back up in this version. Now, what's interesting to me is that the song's tempo and the overall feel really don't quite match the sentiments being expressed. It's very upbeat, it's danceable, but it's basically about a guy begging a girl not to leave him because he'll be miserable if that happens. It's a very torchy kind of song. The song was covered several times, including a couple of versions that actually charted. The Happenings did it in 1968 and took it to number 67 with this version, which kind of turned it into a Vegas act, but that's pretty much the happening shtick, isn't it? It was the Partridge family which came back a little closer to the original, returning some of those doo-wop backgrounds, and the song cracked the top 30 in the United States, and it was number three in the UK and in Australia, and that makes it the most successful cover of the song. But I think it was this version by Lenny Welch in 1970, which peaked at number 34, that may have inspired Neil Sedaka to revisit the song in 1975. Don't take your love away from me. Don't leave my heart in misery. If you leave, I'll be blue. Oh, Lenny Welch, he, man, he can do a sweet ballad, can't he? Anyway, uh, Neil Sedaka, he re-recorded the song as a ballad for his album, Overnight Success, and that was released in the UK that year. I gotta say that this this song, when I was a kid, I was about 12 years old when this record came out, uh, yeah, almost 13, this record confused me because I hadn't heard the original version yet, so when it opened up this way... Come down, do be do down, down. 
that you're leaving I can't believe it's true Girl, there's just no living without you Don't take your love. See, nowadays, if you hear this version, they take off that doo-wop beginning. And, and, and so you don't really know about it anymore. But that's the way the record, re- when it was first released, that's the way it was played every single time on the radio. And I'm like, what is this weird beginning he puts on the record? Had no idea that there was a 1962 version. So there you go. Anyway, Overnight Success was the album. Uh, it was released in the UK in 1973. Uh, it was released later in the year in the United States with a slightly different track listing, and it was retitled The Hungry Years. Breaking Up Was Hard to Do is the second single off the album following Bad Blood, and it reached the number eight position in the United States. See, it didn't do as well as The Partridge Family. It was a top ten hit in Canada, and it doesn't appear to have done much in the UK. Still not bad for a track that was thrown in as an afterthought. And... And if my research is correct, that makes Neil Sedaka only the second artist to chart twice with two different arrangements of the same song. The first would be the Ventures, who went top ten both times with their recordings of Walk Don't Run in 1960 and 1964. And now it is time to answer this week's trivia question. Back on page two, I had asked about the uh, musician who had died just a few weeks before his 27th birthday, who had his body stolen and partially cremated in a national park. That artist would be Graham Parsons of the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Here's the story. Parsons was a remarkably influential artist who managed to fuse country and rock together and is considered the creator of country rock and alt-country and could easily be credited as the reason that bands like the Eagles and Poco came to prominence. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to suggest that he's the reason that artists like Lucinda Williams and Counting Crows enjoyed the success that they have. At any rate, Parsons was fascinated by Joshua Tree National Monument and he visited it as frequently as he could. He'd said at one time to his road manager, Phil Kaufman, that after he died, he wanted to be cremated and his ashes scattered in the park. Now, scattering ashes in the national park is legal, but there are some rules about these things, and this is where stuff gets sticky. Parsons died of an overdose at the age of 26 on September 19, 1973, meaning he missed the infamous 27 Club by about six weeks. Shortly afterward, Parsons' assistant, Michael Martin, and Kaufman contacted the coroner's office and they learned that the body was going to be shipped to New Orleans for the funeral. So they went to Los Angeles International Airport and impersonated a couple of mortuary workers. The airline, thinking that they'd been hired by Parsons' family to ship the body on a charter flight, released the body to them. Martin and Kaufman then brought it out to Joshua Tree National Park, poured five gallons of gasoline into the casket, and set it on fire. And then they left. Some campers nearby saw a fire going on that clearly wasn't a campfire and it also wasn't attended, and they alerted the authorities. A Western Airlines body bag was found beside the casket, and it turned out, well, the body had only been partially cremated. After some investigation, Kaufman and Martin were arrested and charged with grand theft. They were given 30-day suspended jail sentences, they were fined $300, and they were charged $708 for the funeral expenses for his burial in New Orleans. There is an unofficial memorial in Joshua Tree dedicated to Parsons, but it is not officially recognized by the park, and it doesn't appear on the maps. 
But while it's located at Cap Rock, the failed cremation actually took place about a quarter mile away. And that is it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter at How Good It Is Pod. You can also like, visit, follow, do whatever you want. The show's Facebook page is over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks as usual to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. We are back up to number four. Woo! Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time.